When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets in the car, while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If we once established the false principle that United States citizenship does not carry with it the right to vote in every state of this union, there is no end to the petty freaks and cunning devices that will be resorted to to exclude one and another class of citizens from suffrage. Everyone's voting rights will be under attack. She didn't live to see her work come to fruition with the passing of the 19th Amendment. But Susan B. Anthony's impact will last for generations. She is probably the most famous leader of the fight to get American women the vote. Her passion for equality even got her arrested for illegally voting in the 1872 election. No wonder the 19th Amendment has come to be known as the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. I'm Alain Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. In this episode, we're celebrating the life of Susan B. Anthony by talking to Lynn Schur, a renowned broadcast journalist and author of the book, Failure is Impossible, Susan B. Anthony in Her Own Words. Lynn provides perspective on the full scope of Susan B. Anthony's life, including her work in support of abolition, as well as the criticism she's received for her opposition to the 15th Amendment. Lynn reveals the lifelong commitment and sacrifice Susan B. Anthony made on behalf of all women. Listen and learn why Susan B. Anthony is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. I'm so thrilled to be here today with Lynn Schur, who is a really wonderful expert on all things women's suffrage and more. Uh, and today we're going to talk about Susan B. Anthony. Uh, and in fact, one of her many books is about Susan B. Anthony. It's called Failure is Impossible. So, Lynn, what is Susan B. Anthony's place in history? 
Uh, And why should she be on anyone's list of the most inspiring women? You know, it was Gertrude Stein, uh, Milan, who uh, used the phrase, the mother of us all, for the first time. And that phrase, I can't get away from it. She is, in so many ways, the mother of us all. This woman who was never married, never had any of her own biological children, but uh, she had a gazillion Um, young women who worked with her, who called her Aunt Susan uh, several generations worth. So why is she the mother of us all? Because she really devoted her life, her professional life, to doing things for us. She knew that all the things she was working for, the right to vote, equal rights for women, equal pay, these were all on her list of things to be accomplished. She knew this was not going to happen uh, in entirely in her lifetime, and she knew it would happen for us. So we owe her a major debt of gratitude. Well, we're going to learn more about her today by speaking with you, Lynn. Uh, she was born in 1820. Can you give us a sense of what life was like for women at that time? Well, uh, 1820, when she was born, was a time when uh, there were only 23 states in the United States of America, and they were ruled by something called Blackstone's English Common Law. And that rather bluntly stated, the husband and the wife are one, and that one is the husband. (laughs) Yeah, right. You can laugh. I can laugh. But imagine being married in those days, because... It meant if you were a married woman, um, you had no legal right to any aspect of your relationship with your husband. You couldn't own property. You couldn't earn money or make contracts or 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 sue or be sued very often. Um, it meant that wives could be seized if they ran away from their husbands, uh, and it meant they could be beaten. It was a terrible time for women in many, many ways. Um, women generally had to beg their husbands for spending money. Uh, they lost custody of the children if the father chose to spirit them away. So they're, married women really had it tough. All women, whether they were married or not, had a number of additional restrictions. You couldn't go to college. There were no college for women in 1820 when Susan B. Anthony was born. Uh, you could work comfortably in only a handful of professions, housework, sewing, teaching factories. And when women did work, they generally took home a mere fraction of the pay of their male co-workers. But I should point out that single women um, did have to pay taxes. So they were paying taxes to a government that would not let them participate in running it because no woman, of course, had the right to vote, not for school board, not for mayor, and certainly not for president of the United States. So many inequalities. So what motivated her to take on this struggle? And was there a turning point, a precipitating moment? You know, Susan B. Anthony was a Quaker. And I have always believed that had a huge amount to do with her devotion to reform work and to getting equal rights and justice for everyone. She actually grew up in a church where women were preachers. And this was very unusual in the early 1800s. And then as she got uh, a little bit older, she was a school teacher for a while. She very quickly saw that the male school teachers were getting paid four times what she was getting paid. 
this registered on her. Her, her earliest causes were temperance, uh, which of course was to restrict the sale of alcohol, which was not a frivolous thing in those days. There was literally a, a, a saloon or a tavern on every street corner, and married men would spend all their salary on liquor and then get very abusive to their wives and their children. And then she went from that into abolition, uh, abolishing slavery. She was deeply, deeply wounded and touched and hurt by what she saw of slavery. She lived in upstate New York. There were slaves in up in the North, but she went to Mount Vernon once with her family and visited as a tourist. And she realized that the people waiting on her were slaves. She realized that she was meeting slaves. And this was this made a huge impression on her. So she then became a very, very active abolitionist and worked uh, to end slavery. And that, for all the reasons you can imagine, directly led into women's rights because many women, very much as the modern women's movement grew out of the civil rights movement in the second wave in the 60s, the women's rights movement, the first wave grew out of abolition and of anti-slavery meetings. Uh, And she was one of the people that said, wait a minute, um, if it's wrong to have a hierarchy among human beings because of color, it's also wrong because of gender. So that was a huge beginning for her. And through this evolution that you just described, she indeed turned herself into the most prominent suffragette. You know, a lot of people call them suffragettes, and uh, forgive me if I correct you, but they actually called themselves suffragists. Uh. Um, The word suffragette was originally used, as far as we can tell, and I've tried to trace it back as far as possible, in England, because that movement actually got started a little before the American movement got started. And some headline writer, some guy, immediately called them suffragettes, which was like a diminutive. It's like a tiny little copy of the real thing, right? Laundrette. Um, drum majorette, and the the wonderful women in England suddenly co-opted it, and they said, great, we are going to be suffragettes. But the women in this country, most of them, preferred to be called suffragists. They just thought suffragette was a little bit of a put-down. So, Lynn, thank you for that explanation. How did she turn herself into our most prominent suffragist? Well, I think part of it was Her decision, and I do believe it was her decision never to get married, the newspapers called her a spinster. That was the word of the day. Uh, She never married, so she had time. She had time to run around the country. uh, And by run around, of course, what I mean is travel by stagecoach, by train, all over the country. She had the time to go to Washington um, easily several times a year to lobby members of Congress, uh, occasionally to go to the White House and meet with the president, to beg, to organize, to petition, to ask, to demand the right to vote. So she had the time to do it. And there are wonderful um, uh, there are wonderful letters between her and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who, of course, got there before Susan B. Anthony. And Elizabeth and Susan became very close friends. But Elizabeth had 
eight children or nine children. And she was always saying, Susan, I don't have time. I've got my kids here. You you do the writing. You do the speaking. And Susan would go to Elizabeth's house, would help her take care of the children, and then they would write the speeches together. And then Susan would go off and deliver the speeches. So part of the answer that is that she had the time and she made herself available. She devoted herself to what she always called the cause. And it was always capitalized in her diary, capital T, capital C, the cause. And the cause was Susan B. Anthony going out there and um, whipping the country into shape and trying to get suffrage passed. So she developed this great friendship uh, with Elizabeth Cady Stanton. How was it that they came together and became such leaders in the campaign to get women the vote? They met, um, it was either 1850 or 1851 in Seneca Falls. Amelia Bloomer, who was one of the original uh, temperance workers, uh, founded a newspaper called The Lily, which uh, was originally devoted to temperance. And she also, of course, became a suffragist. Amelia Bloomer introduced them, and the two of them just immediately hit it off. I, I think of them as the original odd couple of the suffrage movement, and yet they just completely hit it off. They became partners um, for another 50 years. It's quite an extraordinary friendship. I, I was giggling today. I was thinking about something that happened. There were many letters back and forth between the two of them, and at one point, uh, Susan was uh, must have been strangely silent, and Elizabeth hadn't heard from her. And there's a wonderful letter from Elizabeth to Susan saying, Susan, where are you? Are you dead or married? And I thought that was just a, a wonderful indication of how close they were, that the only thing that could have kept Susan from Elizabeth was if she was dead or married. And your book, I might add, is filled with wonderful letters that uh, take us back to this period. Now, we talk a lot these days about women in leadership, women's management style. What was Susan's management style? She was the original micromanager. <laughs> and I suspect that working underneath Susan would have been really tough. Um, sh she was great. If we hadn't had her, we wouldn't have gotten as far as we got in terms of the suffrage amendment because she really browbeat people, not in a nasty way, but she was constant. And she had all these young women working for her. They loved her, by the way. They absolutely loved her. I have uh, in the book, I'm sure you saw uh, a series of letters uh, organizing one of the conventions. And it's a list of things that she's asking the other women to take care of that you would, you just, you would die. It's now be sure the water is on the table and be sure the chairs are a certain height and be sure there are two of them and not four of them, every single detail. But guess what? That's what, that's what got us the vote. Well, this micromanager also had some ideas about clothing for women, or call it, as she did, the tyranny of fashion. So tell us a little bit about petticoats versus bloomers uh, and why it wasn't a frivolous concept. Imagine, Milan, imagine waking up and getting dressed in the mid-19th century. First, you put on some kind of undergarment or so, something silky. Then you put on this corset, which had whalebone uh, ribs in it, and you had to lace it so strictly around your middle that you could barely breathe because the image was to have this thin waist. And then 
you put on a few layers of petticoats, which were not made of nylon or or some modern fabric. They were made of heavy cotton and they were starched. And then you put on a dress that could have weighed, I don't know, 10, 15 pounds. And you put on this dress with voluminous skirts that reached all the way to the floor. And then, by the way, you put on your sort of lace-up boots and you might have to wear gloves. And then you were not only expected to get up and breathe, you were expected to walk around and sometimes in, in muddy streets and getting in and out of carriages to get anywhere. So when this innovation came around called the Bloomer costume, which was, by the way, named um, because Amelia Bloomer first put it in her newspaper, and and the Bloomers, it was just kind of these long pantaloons divided, uh, kind of like what, what what were called Turkish pantaloons, but it was it was you know it was wearing pants. It was just really comfortable. The problem is that that everybody teased these women, and they all adopted it immediately. Lucy Stone, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, Amelia Bloomer, and people just made fun of them. And she understood that equal rights, uh, getting the right to, right to vote being the, 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 the right of all rights, the basis for all rights, she understood that all of these rights were all connected. So what you wore and having to wear a corset that constricted you was as constricting as the laws. And I should also add that when she went back to her dresses, she actually claims that she never wore a corset again, uh, that she just breathed and good for her, right? You know, these are such wonderful nuggets to get to truly understand her. What about one of her favorite innovations, bicycling? She was really impressed by the bicycle. The bicycle came around around the end of the 19th century. Susan B. Anthony, as far as we know, never got on a bicycle, but she absolutely cheered it on. You can well imagine, Milan, that uh, any new, any innovation, just like today, raises eyebrows in the beginning. And here was this thing, this bicycle, this this um, vehicle that enabled women to get on it and ride away, just ride away. And of course, women would start to wear divided skirts again when they put it on, but not entirely. But um, Susan, uh, 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 a lot of a lot of people considered the bicycle very radical. It was mm. something that no proper woman should ever get near. Susan B. Anthony thought it was the most liberating thing she had ever seen, and she thought it was a wonderful thing for young women to get on and ride away into the future. And she got herself into some trouble, too. Somehow she came up with the idea to vote in the 1872 election <laughs> in violation of state laws that allowed only men to vote. So tell us what happened, Lynn. Oh, this is one of my favorite stories uh, and my, one of my favorites about Susan B. Anthony. I've written a play about this. Uh, it's the first episode of our podcast, She Votes. Susan B. Anthony encouraged many women in 1872 to go out to the polls and vote. And the occasion for that was that the 14th Amendment had recently been passed. And the 14th Amendment, as you know, the second of the three Reconstruction Amendments, 14th Amendment gave citizenship to the newly freed 
uh, people who were enslaved in the South. So a lawyer friend of Susan B. Anthony's and and of the entire suffrage campaign, um, some lawyer friends looked at the 14th Amendment and said, wait a minute, if the newly freed slaves are citizens, that means so are you. Women are citizens. And as we all know, citizens have the right to vote. So you already have the right to vote. It's done. So it, it was a very clever construction. So a little controversial, I might add. But um, so Susan B. Anthony encourages uh, women all over the country to go out and vote. And a number of women did. Sojourner Truth in Michigan went to the polls. A number of women in a, a different places. They, some of them were turned away. In Rochester, Susan B. Anthony wakes up, gets 15 of her closest friends and sisters, and heads to the polls. Uh, first, they register. She browbeats the young inspectors into um, making, letting them register. And then she goes back uh, a week or a couple of weeks later and actually votes. And once again, the, the inspectors were just uh, they didn't know what to do. What do you do with this? She was by then the most famous woman in the world. She was a big hero and a star in Rochester, New York. People didn't always agree with her, but they greatly admired her. It's 1872. She was 52 years old and she cast her ballot for Ulysses S. Grant for president of the United States. And she and all these other women go home and they're all excited. Susan's first stop after she votes is to the newspaper offices because she is so proud of what she's done. She says, look what we've done. She knows it's a test of the law, but she says, look what we've done. So just to make a wonderful long story shorter for these purposes, uh, all the women get arrested, all the women get indicted, but only Susan B. Anthony is tried and convicted for the crime of voting while female. It's um, a two-day trial. All the press was there. It was headlines all over the country. And Susan B. was not permitted to testify in her own defense. Her lawyer put up a very spirited argument. And then the jury of 12 white men who might very well have voted to acquit her the jury was dismissed without being allowed to deliberate. The judge ordered them dismissed. He directed the verdict and he announced something that was well planned beforehand by the federal government that she was guilty. The federal government did not want Susan B. Anthony or any woman to get away with this because that would have sort of wrecked all their plans for control of the government. So she was convicted. Um, the judge made a big mistake. He asked her if she had anything to say. And <laughs> Susan B. Anthony stood up in court and delivered one of the most magnificent, off-the-cuff, totally spontaneous speeches I've ever read. It's just brilliant. Um, she basically says, you've, you've trampled on all my rights. Of course I have something to say. This is awful, on and on. He finally shuts her up. She finally sits down. Um, he pronounces her guilty and he fines her $100. Susan says, I will never pay a penny of your unjust fine. And he says, well, I won't have you committed to jail until you do case dismissed. So what happens is because he wouldn't jail her, 
Susan um, lost all possibility of taking it the next step. She lost all her possibility of appeal. Susan B. Anthony dined out on that story for the next three decades. She would go to conventions. She would go to uh, lectures, and she would tell the story with great humor, and everybody just thought it was a wonderful story, and it probably raised more money for the suffrage treasury than anything else she could have done. It's a remarkable story, and what a gutsy woman. I think gutsy is a great word for her, Milan. I really do. She was gutsy. She was persistent. She didn't let anybody stop her. She was stubborn, I'll give you that, but she wasn't bad. She Mm. wasn't nasty. She wasn't the kind of person who would just stand up and, and talk you down for the sake of hearing her own voice. She was a listener. Um, I think it was, um, I think it was Ida B. Wells who said of Susan B. Anthony that she was so open to listening to everybody, but she, she knew what she wanted and she wasn't going to let anything get in her way. And of course, what she wanted was what was exactly right. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after a short break. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. She was right about so many things. Was she ever wrong? Did she ever make any big mistakes? Oh, yeah. She wasn't a saint. She was a hero, um, a flawed hero, as all of our heroes, I believe, are. Um, On the personal side, I think there are people who would say she, she really was too stubborn, uh, she really did have a sharp tongue. Um, she generally came around and apologized for those things, but there was that. On the world stage, on the grand stage, uh, she's certainly been criticized for her rhetoric during the uh, debate over the passage of the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment is the one where 
uh, Congress wrote an amendment written by a bunch of white men that gave the vote to the newly freed black men, only the black men, not the black women or the white women. Um, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and the whole gang had worked tirelessly for abolition. Uh, they had uh, even put their suffrage cause aside during the Civil War to not split their uh, energies. And they assumed that after the Civil War was won, that in, in I think it was Elizabeth's words, they would all walk into the kingdom of heaven together, meaning they would, they would the newly freed slaves and uh, all women would get the rights at the same time. It didn't work out that way. And Susan was furious, as was uh, Elizabeth, as were many women and men as well. And Susan said some things uh, in, a, in, a, in an argument over this that she probably shouldn't have said. Uh, she and Elizabeth also had this newspaper called The Revolution, a uh, wonderful biweekly, which was designed to let all sorts of people speak about their uh, their feelings. But of course, it was designated to um, get the right to vote for women. Uh, the, the motto of the revolution was women, their rights and nothing less, men, their rights and nothing more. But they ran out of money and they took money and they teamed up with a a racist guy, just say it, a white supremacist named George Train, uh, and they spent about a year and a half or so with him, and that was a bad idea. I say all these things with understanding because nobody's perfect, right? They were offensive to a lot of people, but the way Susan B. Anthony lived her life, the way she spent her entire uh, grown-up life working for the rights and liberties uh, and the vote for everyone belies the fact uh, that she did make some missteps. But yeah, she made some mistakes. So um, Black women were very active in the suffrage movement. Uh, it may not be something uh, everyone is aware of. Yet despite the 19th Amendment that guaranteed women the right to vote, most Black women in the South were kept from, from the polls by the Jim Crow laws uh, and other laws meant to keep them from voting. Susan forged a great relationship uh, with with many in the African-American community. Can you expand on that a little bit and tell us about that dynamic? Her life in Rochester was very full, and she had close friendships with African-American women in the Rochester community. By the way, so close that after she died, they put up in the African AME church in Rochester, there is a stained glass window of Susan B. Anthony. There's also one of Frederick Douglass. Uh, these were their memorials to her. That's how much they respected her. She knew these women. This was not a political alliance. The, these were people she had social relationships with. She also worked with African-American women around the country. And part of what happened is uh, after the turn of the century, certainly late 1800s, early 1900s, it became clear that in the South, in order to get the suffrage amendment passed, there were going to have to be made some associations with white Southerners who were complete racists, out and out white supremacists. And in some instances, uh, the women running the suffrage movement would not let black women attend in the South because they were afraid it would alienate the white Southern women, and it got to be exactly the kind of mess you can think it 
became. Susan B. Anthony, watching all this going on, orchestrating some of it, would go to the South, would go to these Lily White suffrage meetings, and then on her own time, she would go off to the Baptist church, to the AME churches, to the socials with the women, and meet them and talk to them and hear what was on their minds. So at a very deep level, she was connected with the African-American community. Uh, a, a story that is is one of my favorite stories, although it's a sad story in so many ways. Ida B. Wells was a friend of Susan's. Ida B. Wells came to Rochester to give a speech. Susan invited her to stay at her house. Uh, Susan went out to do something and came back. And Ida B. Wells is there handwriting, that is to say, with a pen and ink, uh, some letters. And Susan said, why are you doing that? I told my secretary to take dictation from you. And Ida said, I tried, but the secretary said that she would not take dictation from a colored woman. Susan B. Anthony fired the secretary on the spot. This is a story that Ida B. Wells tells in her autobiography, and it's a story that is told about Susan in her biography. This was a very principled woman. So Lynn, you've just told us so much uh, about Susan and her achievements. What lessons can we take from her life? Uh, Particularly now, there are going to be so many commemorations of this 100th anniversary of women's right to vote. Look at the title of my book, which is taken from what is supposed to be the last statement she made in public, failure is impossible. This is a woman who spent her entire adult life working to get us the right to vote. And she died in 1906 before it was possible. This is a woman who begged, who persuaded, who lobbied congressman after congressman after senator after president and never took no for an answer. This is a woman who would go to the political conventions and say, give us a line in your platform. Say that you are supporting women's suffrage and was turned down flat. 99.9% of the time. And yet she kept going. She just kept going. This is also a woman who understood that without the help of the next generation and the next and the next, it would never happen. So she trained young women. She taught them what to do. And she knew that they were the ones who were going to do it uh, if she couldn't get it done by herself. But she never gave up. And she did it with a joy and a sweetness, and a wit, and an understanding that we're all in this together, and that if we women don't work together for our own rights, nobody else is going to do it for us. Well, you've certainly told us why she should be on anyone's list of the most <laughs> inspiring women. I, As much as one reads about her, there's just so much more to, uh, to learn and to understand and to fit with these times. Uh, So in addition to uh, calling attention to Failure is Impossible, your book about her, I want to mention another book that you wrote called Susan B. Anthony Slept Here. And I mention it because this is a special year, and it may well be that uh, people want to go and see some of the women's landmarks. And that book is all about those treasures all across our country that are landmarks for women and women's progress. And Before we close, Lynn, I want you to tell us about your new podcast, She Votes, 
our battle for the ballot. I love our new podcast. My my dear friend and colleague, Ellen Goodman, the Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the Boston Globe, and I uh, are co-hosting this podcast, eight episodes, telling the story of suffrage and its connection not only to what we covered in the second wave of feminism as reporters in the 70s and 80s and 90s, but the connection to today and how there really is a through line from the anti-slavery meetings back in the early 1800s when uh, Black and white women were not allowed to stand up uh, when the men had the meetings. And so they created their own meetings uh, and started lobbying for their own public voice through Seneca Falls, the convention in 1848, when we, when thanks to Elizabeth Cady Stanton, it was the first public demand for the right to vote for women. And then through all the trials and tribulations of the, 19, uh, the late 19th century, and finally the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920, Susan B. Anthony and the entire suffragist movement understood that without the vote, we have nothing. The vote is our pathway to democracy. And in the process of telling this story, Ellen and I have had a wonderful time doing it, and we've both learned so much. But we've all, we also tell some of the things that were not the most beautiful side of it. There was racism. There was classism. These people were not perfect. Our heroes are not perfect. Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass were the very closest of friends. They had a friendship dating way, way back. And when it came to the 15th Amendment, they completely disagreed. Susan thought Fred was throwing the women under the bus by supporting that uh, the, this amendment for black men only. Fred thought Susan was throwing black men under the bus because he said someone needs to get the vote first. And guess what? They made up. They made up almost immediately and spent another several decades as close friends and allies. And Susan B. Anthony spoke at his funeral. So we tell these stories understanding that they're not perfect. And this movement, to me, says so much about this country. We, we interviewed Paula Giddings, wonderful um, Smith College historian, who said, when you understand the suffrage movement with all of its complexities, you understand this country. And it's true. We are a flawed country and we keep trying to make it better. And we keep working to create that more perfect union. Uh, thank you so much for bringing Susan B. Anthony uh, to us, uh, for making her so alive and for reminding us of the struggle it took to get women the right to vote, uh, and for, if this reason alone, we should exercise our right to vote, given what they went through. Uh, Lynn, I can't thank you enough. This has been wonderful. And let me just add one more thing. The thing that Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton wanted more than anything was something called universal suffrage. They believed that it should be a citizen's right to vote. If you were born in America or were a naturalized citizen, you should automatically have the right to vote. There shouldn't be any possibility for a state to put up uh, restrictions based on education or color of your eyes or any of the other horrible things that the Jim Crow laws did in the South, for example. There should be no 
possible obstacles the federal government, they said, should sanctify, should mandate universal suffrage. And if we'd had that, as they urged early on, we sure would have avoided a lot of problems. So happy anniversary to us all in this hundredth year of suffrage in the United States, the right to vote for women. What a remarkable woman. And Lynn Schur is the best possible guide you could ask for. So what does Susan B. Anthony have to teach us today, 200 years after her birth? That purpose fuels persistence. Belief in a cause greater than herself propelled Susan B. Anthony to beg, persuade, and buttonhole congressman after congressman, even presidents, to give women the right to vote. 99% of the time, she was rejected outright, but she kept going for decades. She also reminds us that we need to build for the next generation. The many young women she trained in the women's movement would become the ones to help get the 19th Amendment over the finish line. And finally, her life demonstrates that we need to own our battles. As Lynn says, if we women don't work together for our own rights, nobody else is going to do it for us. Tune in tomorrow to hear from our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 women to hear. For more great listens from Seneca Women, check out our other podcasts. Every weekday, join us for a brief take on all the good that's happening in the world on Seneca's Hear Something Good. And every Thursday, listen to inspiring and shared learnings from legendary women entrepreneurs on Made by Women. If you want to support organizations making a difference for women and girls, you can donate to the Women's Economic Future Fund. Learn more on our website at SenecaWomen.com. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Special thanks to our iHeart producers, supervising producer Molly Socha and supervising sound producer Matt Stillo. If you like what you heard on the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. We hope you'll join us for our next episode of 100 Women to Hear, where we can all listen, learn, and get inspired. Have a great day. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. 
With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. Com slash compatibility.